Here's Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and all the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answers, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not uh, only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. Facebook stats say that the average person has 150 friends. Friends, right? I don't know where that puts you on the scale. It doesn't really matter. When those average people were asked, if of your 150 friends... You put out a call because you were in distress or you were in trouble or that you needed somebody to show up at your doorstep or something equivalent because something had happened in your life, some crisis. How many of those 150 would show up? The answer is less than one hand. It's four. Four. Four people out of 150 friends would actually show up in a crisis. Now, we can probably all agree that whatever friendship is, maybe we've lost a little bit of what it means to be a friend, but whatever it is, it's probably more than Facebook, right? Um, But we know this, it is absolutely crucial to us. There was a Harvard study that was done, and it followed about 300 people over the course of 70 years. It, it, It was a huge, huge study. And one of the chief goals for this study was to determine what makes a life worth living, what makes it successful, what makes it fulfilling, what makes it happy, what thing that a person can do in life gets the most credit for giving people the best life that they can have. And here's the answer that they came up with after following 300 people over 70 years. The answer they came up with, it's your relationships. 
Your relationships in life are the most crucial thing in order for you to look back at the end of it and say, that was awesome. The leader of the study said this, let me lay out 70 years of evidence that our relationships with other people matter and matter more than anything else in the world. Your friends, my friends, have a huge, huge impact on whether or not you live life well. And in this text, I know as we read it, it seemed like a page out of the Fedor's travel guide, right? We went here, we did this, we went here, we did this. But beneath that, beneath the travelogue here is a primer about how important our friends are and a reminder to us of what friendship even is. And so let's spend a few moments today talking about friendship. First, friendship equals maturity. Friendship is maturity, maturity. Paul is on his third missionary journey here and We covered this last week, but the Holy Spirit comes to Paul and he kind of gives him bad news. And Paul knows from here on things are going to change. The Spirit has given him an outlook on the future that is pretty bleak. Uh, The Spirit said, Paul, wherever you go, afflictions await you. Imprisonment awaits you. Doesn't matter where, wherever you show up. There are going to be hard times. There are going to be anxious times ahead. And think about if you would get news like that. It's going to be hard times ahead. Doesn't matter where you go, what you what you say, what you do. It's not going to it's not going to be pretty. What would you do? What Paul does is that he turns to Christian people. Did you hear it in the text? People from Ephesus back in chapter 20 that we didn't read. And in this text that we read, people from Tyre, people from Ptolemais, people from Caesarea, even on their way to Jerusalem, they'll find a guy that they spend some time with. Paul is faced with news of impending suffering and hardship. And what he does is he turns to his friends. Do you do that? Do we do that when we hear of hardship. A lot of us do, but some people, some of us, we give the excuse, you know, well, I don't have time. I don't want to create obligation. I'm too old. I'm too young. I've been hurt before, so I don't want to lean on my friends too much. Or maybe it's my personality. I'm just introverted. And so I just, I'm just not the busy, you know, the friend be type. Maybe we've trained ourselves to keep People at a distance because if we give our lives to people, we see that as some sort of weakness. And so we keep them at arm's length. There was a, an article that was published um, in uh, May of 2005, and it, it uh, presented studies that were conducted with patients who had severe medical conditions that required lifestyle changes in order to live. In other words, you're going to die unless you change some things about your life, all right? That's, that's the deal. And they tracked these people, and they found that within 12 months, 90% of the people had reverted back to their old lifestyle. In other words, they guaranteed their own death And were unwilling to keep up with the changes that they were supposed to make. An overwhelming majority of people will fail to change their lives 
if it's just left up to them. But there was another group. The other group had great success. It was actually 80% success. So the first rate had a 90% failure rate. The second group had an 80% success rate. What was the difference? The difference was the second group was encouraged to be part of smaller peer groups as they made these changes. They would meet on a regular basis. They would discuss their progress, their struggles, their challenges. By encouraging one another, they generally stayed on track. And the lesson is, if you're trying to implement change, if you're trying to go in a certain direction, if you know hard times are coming in your life, don't go it alone. The chances of success for you are far greater if you rally people around you. Does that sound like anything we encourage on a weekly basis here at the church? Get involved in a Sunday school class. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in a little group that's serving and doing things and surround yourself with people because it's healthy, it's mature, and it will save your life. Deepening friendships isn't weakness. It's maturity. Here's number two. Friendship is truth. Friendship equals truth. Paul gets to Tyre, a little city in verse 3, and he has some time on his hands because the ship is unloading and it's going to reload. And it turns out to be about a week. And so he begins, the text says, searching for people. That's the word. He deliberately seeks people out that were followers of Christ, and he meets people for the very first time. Now, catch that. Here's Paul. Here's the guy who is responsible for planting more churches than anybody has ever planted. And he goes to an area and he meets believers who have been there for a while. They are meeting for the first time. So he did not plant this church. It is just a result of what the gospel always does the inevitable spread of the gospel. It got there before Paul. And so he meets these friends and these new friends start hanging together. And look what happens in verse four. Almost immediately, they get up in Paul's business and tell him to change his plans. You shouldn't go there. You shouldn't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Now, let's step back from that. What's, what happened the last time someone you didn't know too well got too close too quickly? How'd you respond to that? You don't really know these people and and they're already telling you how to live. Did that go well? Probably not. But Paul, this is an amazing thing. He, He doesn't oppose them. He lets them in. He lets their voice be heard. He gives them input into his future. Why? Why did he do that? How was he able to do that? Because of one of the greatest realities about friendship. And here it is. Friendships are always based on a common truth, a common truth. I want you to think about your life. Think about those people that you call friends and think about what makes them your friends. Why are your friends your friends? It's not that you bumped into each other and peanut butter got mixed with chocolate. You know, if you're under 40, you need to YouTube that. Okay. Uh, The rest of us understand, right? It's not an incident that creates friendship. It's a common truth. That's what it takes. And uh, if you'll think about it a little bit, you'll see this to be evident. Some of you, a few of you in the room, have this as a common truth. This little golf ball, right? 
because some of you go out routinely with a group of other people and you hit this ball around into the woods. You try to find it and you can't find it. So you grab another ball and you hit it into the woods. But at the end of the day, you've spent three or four hours with people, right? With people and you talk about life and you talk about your family and you talk about your job and you talk about your God and you talk about things that matter. Why? Just because of this little ball. That's the common truth, right? Some of you have other common truths. You're into knitting or crocheting. Some of you are into cars. Some of you are into working out. Some of you have kids that are the right age and so you're all together. Some of you all follow the Royals. Like two of you follow the Cubs, right? And Kevin follows the Cardinals. He can't follow them anymore. That's, yeah. Uh, you see what I'm saying? common truth. In the video that we watched, what was the common truth? The common truth is there's no more bus. There's no more bus. So let me get my driver's license and let me take a friend to the grocery store because there's no more bus. It can even be ferrets. I found this picture and I had to share it with you. Um, This is the picture, a picture of a book drop. And the book drop, uh, you may not be able to read it. It's a library book return. And the first uh, the first sign says, Dropbox is broken. Please visit Kathy inside to return your books. And then the second says, Update. Dropbox is not broken. Kathy is just super lonely and wants to talk to you about her nine ferrets. <laughs> if you know anything at all about ferrets, Kathy is your friend, right? That's the common truth, okay? So, If friendships are created by a common truth, then what if, what if, what if the common truth that you started with, and here's where it really gets good, what if the common truth you started with was the gospel? What Jesus came and did for us. What if that's where you started from? Did you know that Jesus prayed for this in John chapter 17? He said, God, just as you and I are one and we have this common truth, may they be one. May this common truth bind them together and may they be one. Jesus prayed that we would share this common truth. How many of you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, how many of you will agree with this statement? After I say uh, this statement, you can raise your hand. Here's the statement. Jesus is God's son. He is the Christ. He died on a cross for my sins. Anybody? Lots of hands going up. Here's here's statement number two. Put them down. Uh, I was dead in my trespasses and sins and I was without hope. But through the cross, Jesus rescued me and gave me a right standing with God. Anybody? Yes. Look at all the hands. Okay. The message of Jesus is the common truth that binds you to everyone else in the room. And that has all kinds of natural implications for us. It means that we're going to spend time with each other. We're going to trust each other. We're going to be committed to each other. We're going to care for each other. We're going to love each other. Even direct each other's lives and rebuke each other when necessary. And that's where Paul is. These newfound friends are getting up in his business. They, and, and, and it's because they have a common truth of Jesus. He's able to trust them. And let them speak into his life. And with other people in this passage, did you notice 
that almost everywhere Paul goes, he, fought, he, he finds these friends and they always seem to be praying together. One time it was with a whole bunch of families on a beach and they knelt down before their God. Here are people who don't have a lot in common other than this common truth of Jesus Christ and they're kneeling in front of the same God and it's the common truth that binds them together in profound ways. And people who would never otherwise be able to be together are able to form bonds in Jesus despite their past, despite their present, despite their language, their culture, their station in life. The common thread is Jesus. And because of that, they are able to be friends. And there are so many texts. We could, we could spend half a dozen sermons on this topic alone. There's so many texts in the New Testament that talk about this idea being a test of grace. In other words, you know you've experienced grace when you can be a friend to somebody you would never otherwise be a friend to because you understand the message of Jesus and they understand it too. At the end of the day, isn't that what God did for us? I was his enemy, but he overlooked that because of Jesus and he became my friend because of what Jesus did. If God does that for me, surely we could do that for other people. Here's number three. Friendship is destiny. Friendship is destiny. And destiny is just another way to say God's will. Did you catch it, the little line about God's will in this text that we read? And I don't want to open up a can of worms and we could, you know, write books on God's will. But I do want to give you one thought. There are lots of text in this, this passage and just immediately before and after about what the Spirit told Paul to do, okay? And it's confusing because we don't really know, is the Spirit that we're talking about a capital S Spirit, like the Holy Spirit, or is this lowercase s Spirit, like Paul's Spirit? Is Paul's Spirit telling him to go? Is the Holy Spirit telling him to go? Is, is kind of both happening? We don't really know. In order to crack this code, uh, it's muddied more because every time it seems like he gets with these people that he's friends with, they tell him to do something different. It happens three times in the text that we just read. Three times. Three times. His friends say, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Even one time, it's with theatrics. Agabus comes, he pulls the belt off of Paul's waist and he binds his own hands with the belt and he gets down on a knee and he says, don't go. And it's just missing makeup and lights. I mean, this is theater, right? What is going on and who is obeying the spirit and who isn't? I think we get a clue in verse 11. Agabus says in the middle of his dramatic, uh, you know, interpretation. He says, this is what will happen. And if we boil it all down, the leading of the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be, Paul, do this, go here. But rather, the leading of the Holy Spirit seems to be, if you do this, there will be trouble. If you go to Jerusalem, here's what you can expect. You can expect some hard times. And so... As good friends will do, 
his friends hear this and they rally around him because they don't want any harm to come to Paul. And they say, don't go. We're worried about you. We don't want anything to happen to you. Don't go. Paul is not worried about what will happen to him. They're going to put me in chains. I've had that. They're going to put me in prison. I've had worse. Paul is not worried about it. There's no stopping his resolve to take the gospel to his people. Now, every one of us in here, because you're on the Christian journey, we, I know this to be true. At some point, you've stepped back and you've looked up into the sky and you've said, God, what is your will for me? Right? Anybody? Yes. I see two hands that are honest. Okay. All right. What is your will for me? What, when you ask that, are you really asking? What you're really asking is about your life. What you're really asking is about your destiny. What you're really asking is about your outcomes. Did you notice where Paul is? He doesn't care about his outcomes, his destiny, his life. Look at verse 24 of chapter 20. Look at verse 13 of chapter 21 that we just read. Paul doesn't care about his life. All he cares about is God's desire and God's will. And maybe there's the fix for us. Maybe instead of asking God, what will happen to me? What should I do? Maybe instead we should pull back and ask God, what do you want? What would help your cause? What impact can I have on your kingdom today, God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, I find no salvation, no salvation in my life history, but only in the history of Jesus Christ. See, when we reframe the question, there is instant clarification because in 99% of instances, what God wants is easy to answer because he's already told us. How should I navigate this situation, God? You should love. Oh, yeah, okay. What should I do about this person in my life? You should forgive them. Oh, yeah. Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I go there to school? There to school? Should I take that job? Should I take this job? Wherever you go, would you just take grace with you? Oh. See, when we ask, God, what's your will for me? That's kind of paralyzing because we have to wait on an answer. But when I ask, God, what can I do for you? That's empowering because I already know the answer. I already know it. Go out these doors and love. Go out these doors and promote peace. Go out these doors and take grace in the gospel wherever you go. That's easy. Paul knew what to do. Church father Augustine said it this way, love God and do what you want. Now, how many of you understand that 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 quote can be taken out of context very quickly? right? But here's what he meant. If you love God the way we're supposed to love God, you'll never do anything to betray him. You'll never do anything to dishonor him. And so underneath that umbrella of loving God, you can do whatever you want. Love God and do whatever you want. That's what Paul's doing. 
Paul loved God, and he also loved his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews, and so he wanted to go back to Jerusalem and get one last crack at them. And his friends didn't want him to go because they knew what harm was going to come. But in verse 14, they finally said, you know what? We know you love God. And so let the will of the Lord be done. The very next verse, verse 15, what does it say? We got ready. We packed up. We headed for Jerusalem. Who's we? It's Luke. And it's the other friends that were just telling Paul, don't go. Luke disagreed with Paul. His friends disagreed. You shouldn't go. But at the end of the day, they wanted Jesus to win and his message to win. And they wanted it to get to the ends of the earth. That's what Acts chapter 1 is all about, right? That's where the book is headed. And they feed into that and they say, we don't want you to go. But at the end of the day, we're on the same team. And so let the Lord's will be done. And Luke packed his bags and all the friends packed their bags and they went. And what does that have to do with friends? A little bit of everything. Think about your deepest friends. What would they tell you? What would they say to you? Would they be like Luke in your life? If you're sitting at a table and you're discussing things and all of a sudden you discuss some things, some decisions that you have to make and you bring up God's will, would your deepest friends be surprised by that? Would they shrink back? Would they laugh? Would they mock? In a fun way, because they're your friends. No offense. But it's, the message is clear, right? Or would they say, how can we help? Can I pray for you about this? How can I push you into God's will? Back in my youth ministry days, we used to say it like this. Your deepest friendships will determine likely where you spend eternity. So choose wisely. Your friends will determine your destiny. And I need a friend like Luke. Paul needed a friend like Luke. Knowing God's will when you really love him is probably the easiest part. It's doing God's will that we trip up on. And for doing God's will, we need people around us who will push us into it. And Paul has friends that love him so much that they do this. Would your friends do that? Would you be that kind of friend for somebody else? Your friendships determine your destiny. It is not an accident um, that Paul and Luke and company, on their way to Jerusalem, they stop for the night. And the very last verse, did you catch what happens? They spend the night with a guy named Manasin. Now, Luke is writing about the journeys that they're on, right? There are probably dozens, if not hundreds of nights that they spent with people or they spent in some inn somewhere, or they spent out in the wilderness around a campfire. There's lots of those kind of nights that don't get any ink. Luke doesn't write about them at all. And yet he, he puts this little sentence in. We, we stayed with Manasin. Why in the world would he point to that? All we know about Manasin 
is enough. What we know is he was an early disciple. What does that tell you? He's been around a while. Who did he likely walk with? Who did he likely talk with? Who did he likely sit at the feet of and listen to as he preached? But Jesus himself. So here's a guy who has probably been with Jesus and walked with him. And Paul and Luke aren't dumb, and you and I shouldn't be either. If our deepest friendships determine our destiny, then we would be fools not to make our deepest friends people who walk and talk with Jesus. You need a manason in your life. Every week we come around this table and we share a common truth. And that truth is that we are in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ, God's Son, gave His perfect life on our behalf uh, to become the Savior that we need. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. Jesus says, You are my friend. You are my friend. And so when we come around this table every Sunday, in part, we are admitting that we need the help of a friend. When we come around this table, it is in part about publicly proclaiming that we all share a common truth, that Jesus is the risen Lord and that he's also our friend. And when we come around this table every Sunday, it's to remind us that our destiny is sealed. Because he lives, we will also live because we're his friend. That's the greatest news ever. And that's why this table exists. So we're going to have an extended time of communion today. And here's, here's what that's going to look like. I, I want you to make this table what it needs to be for you today. Are there some people in this room that you have a friendship with, but that friendship isn't right Take this time and make that friendship right. Are you sitting by somebody that needs to be your friend? Maybe your spouse needs to be your friend again. Maybe your spouse was never your friend to begin with and you need to be friends. Can you start by sharing the common truth that brought you both here today? Maybe you need to offer forgiveness to somebody who used to be a friend. Maybe you need to be apologetic because you were a bad friend. Or we can go the other way. Maybe you need to go to somebody in this room and say thank you. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being Luke to me and pushing me into God's will. Thank you for encouraging me. Thank you for praying for me. Will you do that today? We're going to have our regular communion time, okay? We're going to have those servers come forward. And if you would go ahead and and get in place, that'd be great. We're going to have them come. I'm going to pray here in just a second. And we're going to do our normal communion time. After the trays are out of the room, we're going to uh, sing a song up here. And it's just for you. We're going to just sing it for you. And during that song that is appropriately called, What a Friend, (laughs) I want you to do some business with your friends. And I want you to do that. You have three options. Number one is to go to that person in this room. See, you already know what to do, right? 
As I was talking, you already know what you didn't have to ask God's will. You already know it. Go to that person in this room and say what you need to say. Number two option is to pull out your phone and to use your phone. Text somebody, email, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever you do. Text your friend what you need to text them. Maybe they're not in this room. You can do it that way. Or number three, and this is only if you are comfortable with what you're going to do being public, okay? Let's say you're going to thank a friend or encourage a friend or tell a friend that I'm going to pray for you. If you would be willing to do that in a public way, we have a Twitter, uh, we have Twitter open, and we're going to ask you to tweet at CCC Fort Scott, uh, hashtag CCC Friends, okay? And after the song that we do, we'll put those tweets on the ceiling and we'll scroll them for the remainder of the service, all right? So, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he gave it to those he loved, his friends, saying, come, take and eat. This is my body broken for you, and today he says the same. And so, I want us all to pray, pray for our communion time. Would you pray after me, saying these words, Lord, strengthen my friendship with you, so that I can strengthen my friendships with other people. We pray this in the name of our friend and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.